who's this movie for? That's a great question. I don't think it's for people who are really fans of, let's say, Nicole Kidman. You know what I mean? It's just not high in the list there. Something you might, out of curiosity, want to see that way. I think essentially it's it's pitched at action adventure fans, if you would say. Demographically, I'd say like mostly male and maybe, you know, I, I'm just guessing at age range here, but but I, I think it's more, in fact, some of the uh, analysis of the film, like, like, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, I think it was getting more of a, a male demographic, if you will, just because of the, the murder and mayhem, stuff that guys like. I mean, you know, I've got indulgent stereotypes here. What do guys want to watch? Sure, hack them up. But even as I say that, I'm not entirely comfortable with it in the sense that even with that kind of demographic and that kind of violent story, this is a film so distant in time and just so alienating in certain ways that I'm not sure even like that that core demographic would turn out as readily for this as they would for films either with a contemporary setting or a more familiar historical setting. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about The Northman and The Bad Guys, starting with The Northman, which, Mike, I have summarized it as Game of Thrones meets The Seventh Seal. So <laughs> this is, it's set in uh, the year 914 during what they call the Age of Land Taking referring to the early settlement of Iceland before the establishment of the all thing. All right. So it also, this story inspired Shakespeare's Hamlet. It's got this sort of sweeping epic tone and feel to it. But where do you want to start, Mike, with the Northmen? Well, I want to start by actually going back, not quite that far, but a little further back, back in film history, at least. Namely, that there haven't been that many movies that explicitly dealt with the Vikings. You know, we have all sorts of historical periods, but the Vikings don't usually have center stage that way. But it reminded me of a mainstream Hollywood movie from 1958 called, guess what, The Vikings. It's got a big cast, you know, Kirk Douglas and Janet Lee and so on. But, you know, among the cast, you have people like, and I'll try not to smile too much as I say it, but in this movie about Vikings, you've got Ernest Borg. Borgnine and Tony Curtis. And need I say more? In other words, it's very much a mainstream Hollywood movie that era. And you don't feel like you're really there with uh, the, the true Vikings, if you will. It, it just seems like a Hollywood movie where they put Viking costumes on, on movie stars and the accents are all over the place and so on. So anyway, I'm not going to belabor that other than to mention that, that you know, that, that's the typical Hollywood treatment. Although I had at best mixed feelings about the Northmen, to its credit, it's extremely well researched. They did their homework. They brought in historical experts on Viking culture and so on. And one of the ways that plays to advantage is the story itself, as Maurice just mentioned, relies on old Nordic myths. And many of these were the kinds of stories that actually a playwright like you know, Shakespeare learned from or borrowed from in, in some ways. So as you watch the Vikings, even though it's so distant in so many ways, the narrative arc will be familiar to us from Hamlet. The storyline is so close to what, what Shakespeare would do with similar material in Hamlet. And, uh, you know, if we were having a Shakespeare seminar, we'd talk about how many famous Shakespeare plays actually are based on, what, whether it's ancient Greek and Roman mythology or Nordic or, or what have you, that he was stealing from the best, if you will. He was going back in time and, and getting story material there. And so that helps to make it a bit more familiar in terms of the overall story. It can be murky in different ways, visually and, and thematically, but the basic storyline holds up there. And just to jump ahead for a, a mill moment here, when you start talking about Shakespearean parallels, 
one of the actors in this is Nicole Kidman. And, you know, the, the character she plays is right out of, you know, Hamlet or, or you know, she, or actually she in some ways resembles like Lady Macbeth even at times. You know, that's a character type that will be familiar to us. And so that kind of familiarity, again, helps to get the audience settled in. Marie, let me turn it back over to you because I had such mixed feelings about the film and was not as enthused by it as I'd hoped to be. And maybe we can talk this through as to why uh, it was kind of underwhelming for me in various ways. It, it, it's sort of uh, loud and bombastic and grabs your attention, but I was feeling kind of indifferent. Well, I saw this at your favorite theater, the Charles, and I was one of two people in the whole largest theater to see this and I had timed it just right where I walked in exactly as it was starting so I walked into a pitch black room and was immediately thrust into this dark medieval world which I was very taken with that I was also very taken with the cinematography it is sweeping it's beautiful the shots are well designed but wow what a blood fest I mean that's why I compared it to Game of Thrones it has all those elements of you know, betrayal and murder and, you know, let's disavow somebody and, you know, let the audience watch his intestines spill out before he falls into the fire in a shower <laughs> of cinders. There was a lot of that. If you have, you know, if you don't like to see a lot of violence, this is definitely not the movie for you. The biggest criticism I have is, which we always come back to, Mike, it's 16 minutes too long. And I think they could have trimmed some of the mayhem and brought it in under two hours. That's my very first comment. Yeah, in fact, that's actually what I, I was hoping to hear in the sense that I love that people agree with me. And so <laughs> now that we're in complete agreement here, it, it's just relentlessly brutal. Now, I realize with that time period and just with the nature of the story, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. There will be blood and a lot of it. There's just too much. I mean, it makes the point and then there's just more and more and more. So it's really overlong. And that actually is something that most critics have, have stated. Anthony Lane in The New Yorker had a really incisive review of the film where he described it as, quote, at once overwhelming and curiously uninvolving, close quote. And that was the way I felt, that, that on a surface level, how can you like, you know, not have your eyes wide open when, when, when you're watching all this murder and mayhem and intrigue, but there's just so much of it and it just, it just doesn't quit. And even though it is very well shot, just as it's very well researched, at some point, there's a kind of animating spirit that, that's not quite there. In other words, whether you want to phrase it by way of character identification, that we, the people we care about. Sometimes, actually, and Marie and I uh, have already talked about this as we discussed the film uh, among ourselves and not with the, all of you, is the fact that in this kind of period piece, and we're going way back in time for this period piece, you know what happens sometimes? You get like really heavy costumes and on the male characters, really heavy beards, and you have a lot of headgear and headwear and so on. And there are times, even though there are some well-known actors in the film, times when you can almost forget who you're watching or what you're watching. And even though, as I said, you know, it's, it's, it's well shot in a technical sense, there are scenes that are deliberately murky. So sometimes, and Marie and I have joked about this, sometimes we'd be like midway through a scene and it's like, oh yeah, that's Nicole Kidman, isn't it? And not that you have to have movie stars with, with the, the halo lighting and glamour effects and you know a front and center movie star, but there are times where with all the murder and mayhem, I think actually you just even almost lose sight of some of the characters. Marie, why don't you follow through on this? Because you know, even though it's a fairly easy story to follow in terms of basic outline, there are individual scenes where you just see all sorts of pillage, right? All sorts of people running around and hacking each other up and so on. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, wait a minute. Where's our, even if we call it a protagonist, where are our central figures in this? Did you have that? Um, Marie, I'm assuming you also had that, that issue at times of even just trying to track it that way as you watched it. 
I definitely did. And I had a hard time keeping everybody, you know, sorted. And sometimes you see people like, wait, is that Ethan Hawke? Oh, it is Ethan Hawke. Wait, is that Anya Taylor-Joy from, you know, the chess movie? Yes, it is. So, you know, there are these moments where you recognize actors you really like that you like in other things like The Queen's Gambit. And then, you know, you're trying to reconcile, okay, well, it's a different role. You know, how do I feel about them in this role? But it, it almost seemed too busy. Like you couldn't really follow the thread of it because there were so many side stories and, you know, adjacent action, which I think just sort of muddied the plot. I want to mention that there, there were a couple of things I did think were really clever. One is that Alexander Skarsgård, who was the, you know, the driving force behind making this movie in the first place, played a character named Eric Northman in True Blood, which was on HBO for several years. So that kind of tie-in was, was to me very, I liked it. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. But I want to ask you, Mike, about, you know, the Hollywood math that goes on here, where I've seen Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman in another TV movie kind of thing called Dirty Little Lies, which I believe was also an HBO production. And in that, they play husband and wife. And in this movie, she plays his mother. You know, talk about that Hollywood math there, Mike. Marie and I always joke about this, that, that you know, that will happen. In, in one movie, this is your, your wife. In another movie, this is your mother. It's a curious phenomenon. Now, Nicole Kidman's been blessed in that, that she's continued to get leading roles, you know, in, into middle age, which is not the case for many um, Hollywood actresses uh, through, through the decades. Even though I did think about that, in this context, this is a movie with all sorts of strange things in it. So it was not, not even the strangest thing among strange things. And so it actually didn't really nag at me too much watching this. And also in the film, because it's so busy so much of the time, there are scenes where you have mother and son like side by side, uh, to the extent that they have hearts, like a heart to heart talk, if you will. But oftentimes there's so much going on around them that you don't really have a sense of what I call foregrounded characters. You don't always have that sense of the two of them back. If there were more of that, I would have thought more about your point, Marie, about in terms of the actors themselves, their actual ages and what they're playing as characters. But Marie, don't you think under present circumstances, even though, yeah, there's that that age difference you and I are, are talking about here, sometimes when she's talking to her son, there, there's so much else in the scene that it's enough for me just to say, oh, that's Nicole Kidman and Alexander Skarsgård and, and you know, and the 15 feet between them occupied by someone who's just been hacked apart or whatever, uh, you know what I mean? So so for me, it's just that action just packs it in there and um, it's not quite the same as a character study. And actually, actually I think that's one reason that the, the film doesn't quite work for me. Shakespeare knew how to take that material and refashion it in such a way that we have an indelible, eternal sense of those central characters in a play like Hamlet, right? But here, even though you definitely see the, the narrative structure, you see the framework here on both an intellectual and a visceral level, I didn't feel too much identification with them as characters. And this actually, Marie, ironically doubles back on your observation that in terms of mother-son, yeah, I knew that was the case, but somehow I didn't feel that as the case always. No, I'm getting out there. It just seems like uh, I'm tracking people in a very busy storyline. I'm not focusing on uh, a mother-son with an extremely uh, fractured relationship, to say the least. Marie, why don't you reprise the story a little bit? Because uh, it, it is close to Hamlet, but it's not the same story. Well, it has you know a lot of the same elements of that whole epic tale where you know some people are captured and forced to work against their will. They work to try to escape their circumstances. They are betrayed by people in their own midst. There is a weird relationship between the mother and the son. And that's where, you know, I, I would really like to know 
what Nicole Kidman was thinking when she took this role, because it's certainly a juicy role. You know, if you think about something like Game of Thrones, it's always, you know, the evil people like Cersei who are fun to watch and follow because, you know, they're going to get the juiciest lines and and get to play the villain. And I've always heard actors would prefer to play the villain because it's it's just, you know, so much easier to sink your teeth into the role. And it's much more satisfying to play somebody with different facets to their character, as opposed to casting her in the role that they gave Anya Taylor-Joy, which also would have worked just in terms of her age being similar to Alexander Skarsgård. I think what makes it, what would have made that tricky is then who do you hire to overshadow Nicole Kidman in a lesser role or a more flattering role or a more sympathetic role? You know, who would you get? I mean, there's lots of actresses who could do it. I mean, I could think of Susan Sarandon, for example. But I think Nicole Kidman is pretty good in this. But I was sort of surprised that they threw us at, you know, this big age difference between two actors who are obviously peers. As we talk about the actors, Nicole Kidman has done so much work. I mean, so many different kinds of movies. I'm not surprised in terms of the versatility within her career. It's just a, I don't want to say it's just another job, but I mean, she just keeps going, right? So, so it's not as if she waited years and then decided to take this. I mean, she's done a bit of everything over the years. I think it may have been, and I haven't read any statements prior to the effect of what you're asking after, but I'm conjecturing that she wanted to work with this director, Robert Eggers, because he's done some really interesting work. Marie and I, on a previous episode, had talked about The Lighthouse, and then a film he did, which is, uh, what, 2019, I think, and then and about three years prior to that, had done a film, The Witches, which I like a lot, actually, because that immerses you in the Puritan culture of, you know, 17th century. And again, this is a director who does his homework and has a good team to follow through on that with production design and cinematography and so on. So you really feel like you're in that place. And that's the thing that, that impressed me about The Witches. You really felt like you were there. And even though I'm not wild about The Northman, but when I'm watching The Northman, I really feel like I'm in that culture, for better or for worse. I'll never complain about our society again. I, that, that was one of my reactions, Marie. I, I thought for all our problems, I didn't have to deal with a lot of what they're dealing with. But I, Marie, don't you think that would be one reason why if you were Nicole Kidman, I and mean, we were doing sort of what if hypothetical conversation here, if you were Nicole Kidman and Robert Eggers, the director, and his team said, hey, how would you like to appear in this Viking epic? That's a really tempting offer, you know, and, and she's very good at what, I mean, she can play regal and she can play tough. And, you know, and she doesn't mind playing a, a borderline uh, dislikable character. And, and certainly I think her character here is definitely a good one, is definitely unlikable. I mean, I mean she is a very selfish and, and very survival oriented character in a way that she's not very nice to a lot of people around her. Marie, what do you think of that? Because it seems to me that she actually does have, Nicole Kidman does have a lot of the, what I would call character traits or capabilities for a role like this and wanting to work with a director who takes on, I think this is the least interesting of his films, but look at his track record. And sure, Marie, don't you think you'd want to be in a movie directed by this guy? Absolutely. I mean, I can't say enough about The Lighthouse. I thought that was just done so incredibly well. Cinematography, again, just the daringness of the very, very small number of actors who carried the whole film, the quality of the acting, everything about that movie is just amazing. That doesn't really come through in this. I think this feels like something he made before. You know, he came to something like The Lighthouse. And I'm conjecturing too, but if I was Nicole Kidman and they asked me if I wanted to be in this movie, I wouldn't want to play the ingenue. I would want to play the evil mother. So I think, you know, that that's probably what that was all about. 
what did you think about Alexander Skarsgård, Mike? I mean, one of the things that I it did remind me of, just in terms of hairiness, was The Last Duel, where suddenly you see Mac Damon with way more facial hair than you usually see him in. And Alexander Skarsgård is almost buried under all of that hair and makeup. You know, I was laughing about that because on the one hand, I, I, I'm sure it's his historically accurate that, that people didn't shave as often back then. Let's put it that way. But, you know, that, that sort of uh, hair factor, which I wasn't uh, sure we would be talking about today, but since we are, uh, <laughs> the hair factor, um, it's a really sort of weird thing because, and this doubles back on something I said earlier, when you hire movie stars, and they're very capable with the performances, but they're so concealed. Remember, you know, as I mentioned, you know, whether it's heavy costuming or facial hair, or whatever. And I think that is a, when I say problem here, it's just by way of identification. Sometimes you don't even quite see him well enough, right? It might be a murkily lit scene. He's got a lot of facial hair. It's a big fight at night and so on. And in some of those scenes, and this sounds cynical, but in some of those scenes, you could have almost anybody wielding that sword, you know? And, and, and so I think that for him as an actor, it's not something really pushing the limits there. He plays a really tough, determined character, but that's sort of a one-note personality, which I realize his character might well have, uh, Amleth, his character. We've talked already about Nicole Kidman as Gudrun, and, uh, and you know, I think she is well cast in it, and, and she always has screen presence, even when you can't quite recognize her in the scene. It's like, who's that in the white dress sort of thing? Oh, that's Nicole Kidman. But the, the other actor that you've been mentioning is Anya Taylor-Joy, and the only thing I'll note about her here is that she has a wonderful name for a character, only somebody in a Viking saga from way back when, I mean, we're going so many centuries back, only somebody from a film like that or a period like that could have a name like Olga of the Birch Forest. <laughs> I've seen a lot of movies with all kinds of character names. I've never seen Olga of the Birch Forest. So whenever I think about that name, I think, well, it was another time and place. Well, I've, I've known some Olgas, but they never had a from the... Birch Forest following their name. That's a really good point. I do want to mention that this film takes place in what constitutes modern Scotland, Ukraine, Iceland, and Norway. And I point that out because, you know, for history buffs, if you want to see, you know, well, what would it have looked like in that area at that time? I think it does do a pretty decent job of giving you the feel of the place, even though, as we have noted, it's a very brutal world to visit. And Mike, before you respond to that, I also want to add to ask you, who do you think this movie is for? You know, we, we talk all the time about how movies that go over the two hour limit, you know, what are they thinking? And a lot of times it's an Avengers movie where the fans will sit through, you know, however long it is because they're just that committed. But given that this is longer than usual and the subject matter and the violence, who's this movie for? That's a great question. I don't think it's for people who are really fans of, let's say, Nicole Kidman. Or, you know what I mean? It's just not high in the list there. Something you might, out of curiosity, want to see that way. I think essentially it's it's pitched at action adventure fans, if you would say. Demographically, I'd say like mostly male and maybe, you know, I, I'm just guessing at age range here, but but I, I think it's more, in fact, some of the uh, analysis of the film, like, like, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, I think it was getting more of a, a male demographic, if you will, but just because of the, the murder and mayhem, stuff that guys like. I mean, you know, I've got indulgent stereotypes here. What do guys want to watch? Sure, hack them up. But even as I say that, I'm not entirely comfortable with it in the sense that even with that kind of demographic and that kind of violent story, this is a film so distant in time and just so alienating in certain ways that I'm not sure even like that that core demographic would turn out as readily for this. 
as they would for films either with a contemporary setting or a more familiar historical setting. And, the, you know, the film is not exactly done gangbusters at the box office. And so, uh, Marie, I think the underpinning of your question is, is this really a movie for anybody? <laughs> We've been too polite to say that out loud and so directly, but isn't that sort of what you're getting at? You got to kind of wonder, like, who is this made for? I suspect, like I said, it's supposed to evoke the sort of mythical story that you get in The Seventh Seal, but sort of modernized for people who like Game of Thrones. But it doesn't deliver on either promise. It doesn't have a Christian allegory at the core of it, kind of makes Seventh Seal keep going. It also doesn't have the characters that you follow, you know, like Peter Dinklage's Tyrion in uh, Game of Thrones, where they keep circling back to characters you're following, even if you don't like all of the characters. And of course, the murder and the mayhem are just part of the, the background story always. But I love that. Uh, sure, pack them up. I do think it could have appealed to Game of Thrones people because there is this feeling of, you know, any minute now Jon Snow is going to show up or, you know, the wall and the, uh, you know, the half spirit, half people kind of thing. But all of that is just sort of window dressing because it doesn't have all those underlying human stories that you're rooting for people the way you do in Game of Thrones. So to me, that's what made it a miss. Yeah, I think you're right. It seems to me like a film that people won't rush out to watch, but that they, the Game of Thrones demographic, if you will, that people will at one point or another discover it or just, you know, think, hey, let me watch this. And just simply at the level of, you know, action on screen, there's more than enough of that. So as Marie and I have been saying here, just if you take it at that level, and if that's your cup of tea, that they're not exactly drinking tea in this movie, if that's your cup of tea, sure, go for it. The only other thing I would recommend, not recommend so much as make note of, is the fact that there are a lot of history buffs in the world. And, you know, and, and however you feel about the film dramatically, at the level of research and staging, it's often quite impressive. And, I've, you know, do I know what it was like to be a Viking back then? No, but but I've read about it and, and I'm curious about it. And, and watching it, you do feel like you're getting a bit of not quite a history lecture, but at least an immersion in, in, in Viking culture. And then, you know, for people who are interested in, in the terrain, and as Marie mentions, the geography of it, there are some really striking landscapes and really get a sense of what that land, you know, can still be like, but certainly what it would have been like back then. So sure, at those levels, I guess we could not quite recommend it, but if you have interests along those lines, you know, it'd be worth watching. Well, that brings us to our second movie, which is an animated feature called The Bad Guys, which honestly, you know, it could sounds like it's the movie we just talked about. But in this, it's sort of a mashup of Ocean's Eleven meets Little Red Riding Hood, because you have a group of creatures, almost like you wandered somehow into the bad neighborhood of Zootopia. And this is where the criminals are, you know, the, the pickpockets and the thieves. And, you know, they have your standard group of characters that are all going to, you know, work together with their individual talents. So you have, you know, the wolf who is the getaway driver and you know, the shark is the, the master of disguise, and there's a piranha who's the short-fused, you know, loose cannon muscle guy, and you have Aquafina, who's my favorite character, as the uh, tarantula, who's the, you know, the hacker, and uh, the snake, of course, is, he has actually the, I think, the most fun, because he gets to be the most evil all the way through until he has his change of heart. Now, ironically, Mike, it was just me and one other person in the Northmen, and there was, I don't know, 15 people there to see the bad guys, and they were not children. How was it when you went? 
I actually saw a matinee where there were a lot of families with young kids. And, and it seems to me, you know, increasingly, Marie, and you and I have talked about this, animation, and this has been the case for some years now, has as much of an adult audience as a, a, a child's audience. It used to be years ago, it'd be like, oh, well, you know, my kids want to see this animated film and, you know, I'm dragging, I'm, I'm, I'm going along, right? I'm the adult chaperone taking the kids. But now people have that as a ready excuse. Okay, the kids and I are going to see this or just even, well, I don't even have kids, but I'm going anyway. You know, increasingly adults go to see animated films. A lot of the jokes in these animated films are pitched at adults probably more than children. So that, that's a whole separate discussion right there. But it, it, to some extent that kicks in here, but this basically is a movie for kids. Let me tell you that. There are two things I did not like about it particularly, but I'm sort of lukewarm feelings. One is I think it has too many car chases and too much bathroom humor. And I, I don't want to sound puritanical with this, but it just, it really just pushes and pushes. And it's like, okay, enough already with, on both those counts. The other thing I wasn't crazy about was uh, I realized that, uh, you know, dozens of animated films have talking animals, or I call them talking critters as the characters. And here, I think the film just too readily hits that button. In other words, what I'm getting at here is this is a very, it's an overly familiar narrative structure and, and the characterization and so on. I don't think it's particularly interesting that way. It has its moments. It, it, it's worthwhile, you know, certainly with a young audience. And if I were 10 years old and young, actually younger than 10, I probably would have liked it a lot. But for me watching it, seeing a lot of animated films, I just thought it was mediocre. I thought it was okay. Nothing great. There is some good vocal talent. It's fun to see that many animals, I, I suppose. But it has that kind of hectic pacing and just relentless storytelling. And there's really not that much to it. It's just almost like uh, busy for the sake of busy sometimes. Frenetic, I think is, is how frenetic I Frenetic is a great word choice. It is frenetic. Yes. It's almost as if they want to make sure that the attention doesn't flag. So they just keep the tension up all the time. So you're right. As soon as things start to flag a little bit, it's time to have another car chase just to, uh, you know, create that sort of sense of time moving forward and, and interest, even though it's not necessarily all that compelling what's actually happening. Having said that, I did think that some of the jokes were hilarious, you know, character saying, you know, I've got a face of a lizard half my age, did make me laugh out loud. I laughed at the part where at the end when, you know, Snake has been arrested, you know, they just loop the handcuffs, you know, twice down his neck. Funny sight gags. I mean, I do think, yes, it does have a lot of scatological humor, but I did think they threw a bone or two to the adults who would be sitting through this with their kids. I did think it had some moments that were really pretty funny. And I did think the voice talent was pretty good. I wanted to mention that the German dub that they did on the second trailer, they had to take it down because people complained about it so much, which you think, wow, you know, you'd be surprised that people would be that invested in the dubbed version of anything. But it turned out that they had used, you know, B-list actors and YouTubers and were stunned to find out people really noticed that stuff. And they, you know, had to switch and, and hire some some real voice actors. So, you know, just to say there really is a a talent to that. You can't just, you know, grab somebody off the street. Also, this is based on a children's book series of the same name, which is probably done better in the books. I have to admit, I haven't read them because it does, you know, kind of go with the idea of fighting your nature and whether you've just been misunderstood and pigeonholed because you look a certain way or resemble somebody else who had bad character flaws. Anything, any last thing you want to say about the bad guys? Yeah, I'm agreeing, Marie, I'm agreeing with much of what you're saying here. There's that sort of Looney Tunes sensibility to it. 
And some of the jokes are funny. There are some really good sight gags. So for me, that, that kept me with it, if you will. Like, even though I wasn't crazy about the film, every once in a while, there'd be examples like what you cited, where I, I would laugh. I think that's funny. And I think, you know, the people making it are pitching it at a wide audience. But again, a lot of these jokes really register more with adults, in some cases, than with the kids. And that's fine, because I'm an adult watching the film. I want to be amused, too. So the basic recommendation is it, it's worth saying, it, uh, to me, overly familiar and frenetic and so on. But you know what? You know, it, it, it holds your interest. It's kind of fun to watch. It's a breath of, you know, relief after something as, as intense as the Northman. You know, I will give it that. Well, this is, in, this is intense, <laughs> but intensely comic. Yes. Yes. Good. Good distinction. And that brings us to the end of our episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.